Welcome to our podcast, Star Trek Age of Discovery. I'm Adele Austin Anderson. And I'm Gary Anderson. And we're a married couple who are longtime fans of Star Trek. For today's podcast, we will feature an analysis of the season finale, episode 14, entitled Such Sweet Sorrow, Part 2. We'll then provide short takes on some observations we had while watching the show. And then finally, we'll close out the podcast with reporting on other Star Trek-related news, which we actually have quite a bit. So please remember, our podcast contains a number of spoilers, so if you haven't already seen the episode, you should probably shut this off and then first look at it before um, we begin our podcast. All right. So you ready? Yep, ready. Okay. So let's start with the synopsis. The episode picks up where part one left off with the Discovery and Enterprise crews poised for battle against Leland and his forces. Captain Pike outlines their battle strategy, reminding them their number one job is to protect Commander Burnham and Discovery until they make it through the wormhole. On the Discovery, the engineering team, along with Michael and Spock, hurriedly attempt to build the Red Angel suit. The Discovery Bridge crew detects that Leland is the only life sign among the AI fleet. At this point, they realize his armada consists of drone-operated vessels. Leland hails the Discovery and orders Saru to surrender the sphere data. Saru refuses, and Giorgio taunts Leland by informing him his forces are outnumbered by over 200 Federation vessels supporting the two main ships. Leland then reveals his reinforcements, consisting of hundreds of drone fighters, creating an armada that seems to dwarf the Federation vessel. A fierce battle begins and continues unabated throughout most of the episode. Amidst the frenzy, the engineering team races through the ship corridors with the Red Angel suit in tow. An explosion occurs momentarily, disabling the team. Although stunned, most of them are able to continue with their mission, with the exception of Stamets, who has been impaled by some debris. Lieutenant Nielsen and Tilly take him to sickbay while Michael and Spock continue on down to the space dock. There, Michael puts on the red suit, the red angel suit, and launches herself into the chaotic battle scene with Spock following her in a shuttle as her protection. Meanwhile, Poe, Queen of Zahia, has stolen a Federation shuttle to engage in the fight. She provides Pike with intel on how to disable the AI drones. Pike puts his faith in her scheme and orders his fighters to follow her lead. Despite Poe's assistance, the Enterprise and Discovery shields face unrelenting bombardment. It seems as if they won't be able to withstand much more punishment. Unexpectedly, allies arrive in the form of the Klingon cleave ship we last saw in the series pilot, captained by Chancellor Laurel, with Ash Tyler by her side. She is joined by a cohort of Ba'ul fighters from Kaminar, led by Saru's sister, Sarana. Then, in fulfillment of visions previously experienced by Michael and Jet Reno, a photon torpedo lodges itself into the saucer section of the Enterprise. 
if it explodes, it will take out half of the saucer section, including the bridge. Number one, an Admiral Cornwell go to the torpedo site to assess the situation. Spock and Michael land safely on top of wreckage from one of the destroyed ships. There, Michael tries to find coordinates for a wormhole she can use to, for their escape. But, but she's unable to project the destination. Spock is able to figure out that she must first close the time loop she has previously experienced by going back to the time and placing the five signals she sets to bring together the personnel and the forces she would need to defeat control. Thus, she must revisit the asteroid from her episode one, Terralisium, Kaminar, Bereth, and Zahia. On the Enterprise, Number One and Admiral Cornwell are unable to disarm the torpedo. Pike comes to the torpedo site and learns from Cornwell it will explode in 90 seconds if someone does not release the bulkhead from the inside to limit the damage to the ship. Cornwell informs Pike she will take on this suicide mission. Pike tries to reason that a different fate is in store for him so he should take on this task. However, he relents when, Admiral, when the Admiral points out that he shouldn't risk the lives of his crew if he is wrong. With Pike behind a protective door, Cornwall sacrifices herself to give the Enterprise the opportunity to continue the fight. Leland has beamed onto the Discovery with a phaser rifle during the time when Spock and Michael escaped through to uh, begin their mission but he's unable to inflict the mass carnage as foretold in the previous versions of the future. He then goes to a lower decks in search of the sphere data. Commander Jojo and Lieutenant Nan follow him and engage in a hand-to-hand -hand combat. Leland disables Nan, but he and Giorgio continue their fight to the section housing the spore drive. Michael successfully resets the five red signals and tells Saru she will set a sixth signal as a guide to the wormhole. Just as she is going to launch herself to undertake the final leg of the, the mission, Spock lets her know he cannot join her because his shuttle was disabled by enemy fire. After a heartfelt goodbye, Michael promises her brother to set into place a red signal as a sign that she has successfully reached her destination with the discovery. Spock is beamed aboard the Enterprise and Michael launches herself toward a wormhole with discovery following her lead, igniting the sixth red signal as she leads the way to the wormhole. Meanwhile, Georgiou pushes Leland into the sport chamber and locks him inside. Having magnetized the chamber, she uses the force to pull the nanites from his body and neutralizes them, which effectively kills Leland and leaves his forces disabled. Easy target for Federation forces and the Allies to destroy. As a prologue to the story, Pike, Spock, Number One, and Tyler appear before a Starfleet fl official at its San Francisco headquarters to claim the discovery and crew were destroyed during the battle. 
To keep news of the spore drive, control threat, spear data, and time travel a secret, witnesses were sworn to secrecy and ordered by threat of treason not even to ever mention again the names of the Discovery crew. Here we also learn of Ash Tyler's appointment as commander of Section 31 and his charge to rebuild this agency. Exactly 127 days after the battle, we see Spock reporting to the bridge clean-shaven and wearing his blue tunic signifying his position as a science officer on the Enterprise. Number one informs Captain Pike and Spock that sensors have detected the seventh and final red signal, finally assuring them of Discovery's successful mission to the future. The episode ends in a celebratory mood with Pike suggesting that they take the refitted ship for a spin to see a new moon. Spock and number one agree. The warp drive is engaged and the crew head off to experience new adventures. As a nice touch during the credits, the episode closes with a melding of the music themes from Discovery and the original series. This is done to highlight the coming together of these two series for this season. So now let's talk about the overview. Such Sweet Sorrow Part 2 was definitely a fitting conclusion to a successful second season for Star Trek Discovery. As with the case with Part 1, Episode 2 was written by Alex Kurtzman, M Michelle Paradise, and Jenny Lamette. It was also directed by Alatunde Osunsani. Right. And kudos as well must be given to the entire production staff for creating a dynamic, first-rate, cinematic-quality production. That one that does not often see on television. The music, art direction, special effects, and editing all together came into a powerful unit to dazzle the senses while not overwhelming the narrative. Mm -hmm. So now let's talk about some other elements uh, in the episode. Okay. First, we want to talk about Colbert and Stamets. As noted in our last podcast, we had a feeling Dr. Colbert and Lieutenant Stamets would find a way to get back together. This episode confirmed that hunch by providing an intimate moment between the two amidst the controlled chaos of Discovery's sickbay under, under the direction of Dr. Pollard. After Stamets is gravely wounded and brought to sickbay by Nielsen and Tilly, his colleagues reluctantly must leave him alone to address other critical issues. Then, surprisingly, Dr. Colbert shows up at his side, despite the fact that in the last episode he stated he had joined the Enterprise medical staff. In perhaps what is Wilson Cruz's finest moment playing the character, he tends to Stamets with a confidence and a reassuring demeanor one would expect from a medical professional. After administering a shot to Stamets to induce a coma, he tells him, Listen to my voice. I thought I could make my home on the Enterprise. 
And then I realized, you're my home. So I came back. Everything always came back around to you. I'm just sorry it took me so long to see it. You go to sleep now, okay? You let me take care of you, okay? I'm your family. Wherever we go from here, we go together. Hmm. So despite his serious injuries, Stamets musters up a slight smile, noting his approval. It is indeed a beautifully played scene in which the two are finally reunited and essentially reaffirm their vows of fidelity to each other. So Gary, I now want to go to Michael and Spock, mm-hmm. uh, who we both have enjoyed throughout this whole. Well, they've series. been the core of this season. Uh, oh, definitely. Their relationship has been the critical um, one that's actually centered the entire narrative. Yes. So of course, the most touching scene for us in the episode involved Michael and Spock upon the realization they would never see each other again. Michael voices her distress at leaving him behind saying, I just got you back. I don't want you, I don't want to let you go. But Spock explains to her, you'll never lose me. As a child, I was truly lost. The path of my father, the path of my mother. You came into our lives and taught me it's possible to travel both. You found me. You saved me. You are my balance, and you've always have been, and I am afraid I will never find it again without you. Now, Michael then finds the wherewithal to give him some advice that she feels will help to shape his continued growth. She tells him, listen to me, listen to me, little brother. This is the last advice I will ever be able to give you. There is a whole galaxy out there full of people who will reach for you. You have to let them. Find that person who seems farthest from you and reach for them. Reach for them. Let them guide you. In a post-show interview with Entertainment Weekly, writer-producer Michelle Paradise said that person would be embodied by James Kirk in the original series. However, I think this is the place where the writing fell a bit short. The scene is powerful, not because of these words and the reference to an, to an iconic relationship. The scene is effective because Sonequa Martin-Green and Ethan Peck displayed a chemistry that convinced you their characters were indeed siblings engaged in a volatile emotional life journey that would forever link their hearts and be the core of the persons they were becoming. Now for me, the words of the script at this point fail to recognize that throughout the ordeal, and I'm talking about throughout, you know, are watching this relationship unfold between Michael and Spock, that Michael needed Spock as much as he needed her. Throughout the latter half of the season, each time that Michael seemed to falter, Spock stood in as her rock 
and kept her focused on her ultimate objective. Without Spock, their mission would definitely have failed. In addition, it is ironic that last season, Michael would not have been able to articulate the advice she provided to her little brother during this scene. If you, if you will recall, it was primarily Ash Tyler and Tilly who helped Michael to open up herself to other people and expand her concept of humanity and relationships. Nevertheless, in spite of these contentions, we were still deeply affected by their goodbye scene, especially when they exchanged words of love for one another just before Spock is transported to the Enterprise. An extra bonus came later during the epilogue when Spock asserts that despite being unable to speak Michael's name in the presence of others, I feel you with me always. With every moment I grow in this more sure-footed, more certain of whom I am becoming. And you teach me, sister, even now. What else is left for him to say? Well, I have another note on this topic that I would like to share. Since we are taping this podcast on Easter Sunday, I would like to be so bold as to quote scripture, which I feel is appropriate in describing the function of love, whether it be romantic love, as in the case of Stamets and Colbert, sibling love, as exemplified between Spock and Michael, or Saru and his sister Siriana, or love of one's trusted colleagues as shown between Pike and the Discovery and Enterprise bridge crews. The scripture comes from 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7 and reads, Love is patient, love is kind, love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. It's true that the theme examining the tension between science and religion was for the most part dropped after the fifth episode with the departure of the original showrunners, Gretchen J. Berg and Aaron Harberts. However, in the scripture that I read, it is definitely applicable in that true love remains throughout the hills and valleys of a relationship. And even in the case where one is separated from a loved one, either by distance, sickness, or death, that person will remain with you as long as you keep them dear in your heart. Okay, let's look at some other elements that we want to highlight from this episode. Specifically, um, a minor note, but it's a significant one in regards to Star Trek lore. That's the Sun Tzu quote. As they ready themselves for battle, Saru quotes Sun Tzu, a 6th century BC Chinese general that is best known for his treatise, The Art of War. Uh, Saru's choice for the quote does not necessarily fit the situation or the strategy chosen to fight control. However, it does fit into the Star Trek tradition 
of the recognition of this military strategist, which references to him made um, in such Enterprise or Next Generation episodes, as well as the Vulcan Hello, which is the premiere episode of Discovery's first season. I next want to talk about Ash Tyler, who, as noted by other reviewers, it's not really explained why Ash would not be more restrained in revealing that he's alive to other Klingons uh, besides Laurel. When in a previous episode, Laurel asserted that the ruse that Tyler was killed must be kept a strict secret. However, we do want to note that Tyler's sacrifice of his own future with Michael in order to rally forces to better ensure her protection is one that shows that he, as um, actually um, the actor explained in an interview, that he feels himself to be her guardian. So he would place her safety above his own happiness with her. Yeah, but still, you know, he goes to Konos and he's a dead man. Right. I'm just saying. Right, right. <laughs> I'm just so, saying. Now, yeah. now, so either everybody on that cleave ship that he was on right. with her is of Laurel's house. And they're sworn And they're sworn to, to secrecy. Um, or, or there's going to be trouble down the line. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I mean, I just don't get that. I don't get that. That was like, that was an obvious thing. They It was something they had set up earlier. Right. And then they said, oops, well, you know, we're just going to throw that out the yeah, window. This right time. This time. We're going to see how that right. goes. So now I think we want to talk a little bit about the really mm-hmm. strong female characters that we've seen, mm-hmm. you know, and especially in this episode. And so, I know that this has been a, for some of the critics of the show, one of the things they have criticized has been the fact that this show has strong female characters, which makes no sense to me. Yeah, that's just sad. <laughs> There's something wrong with those people if yeah, they yeah. have an issue with that. So besides Michael, we want to acknowledge the depiction of the strong female characters in this episode. Okay, the first one we want to talk about, obviously, is number one, who, in a short period of time, played by Rebecca Romaine, succeeded in creating a no-nonsense first officer for the Enterprise. She proved herself resourceful, cool under fire, and showed how she complemented Pike's more straight-arrow persona. We especially enjoyed the scene between her and Detmer, where she asked the Discovery officer, what's the intel on how much perimeter Burnham will need to get far enough through that wormhole? When Detmer answered her with a long technobabble answer, number one, did not hide her annoyance as she responded, English please, I can't blow a path through what you're saying. It was a clever scene for the writers demonstrating what happens when a Star Trek character emblematic of the show from of 1966 is confronted with one written from the context of 2019. Next, let's talk about Admiral Cornwell. Following the tradition of dramatic depictions of battles, at least one character of note has to be sacrificed to convey the gravity of the situation to the other characters as well as the audience. Admiral Cornwell was chosen, despite the fact one would question why a trained psychologist 
rather than a munitions officer, would volunteer to assess the volatility of the torpedo and whether it could be disarmed. Yet, we still want to recognize actor Jane Brooks for her memorable portrayal of this character in this season as well as in season one. We were pleased that after the character realized such a sac sacrifice had to be made, the writers gave her a moment with number one in which they linked four forearms as a symbol of their dedication to the cause they were fighting for. So this is reminiscent of, you know, what they say that the Romans would do and the Vikings would do. Although there's not really a lot of proof that they actually did it, but when you watch like movies, uh, you know that show that period, you see that linking of the yeah, flies. you see that in a lot of those sword and sandals movies. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, here's the problem with her sacrificing herself by cl manually closing that blast door. Right. This ship does have transporters, and they could have done a site to site transport of her out of that spot. And into someplace safe. Well, that's, so that's the sacrifice she makes, but it's a dumb one because in context, she should have been able to get out of there. Well, that's why you shouldn't have sent a psychiatrist. That's why you shouldn't have sent a psychiatrist. <laughs> because a psychiatrist wouldn't have said, hey, y'all got them transporters. Why don't you hook me up and get me the hell out of here after I close this blast door? Yeah, I, I would say that the only way that they could get around that is, remember, they kept making a point that to work the transporters, you had to lower your shields. And so maybe they're trying to say that that also works even if it, they're already inside. Okay, okay, okay. Here's the other thing, though. Uh -huh. Once again, this is a scene where when, well, when Pike is there and then he he's talked out of staying there. Right. And he goes out and he's just in the hallway. Right. He's in the hallway in front of the blast door. Right. The blast door with a glass window. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying. It's ridiculous. It's Well, it's an opportunity for him to see her sacrifice, sacrifice right. and then for him through through his eyes we see the damage that's done to the ship because we see the op it, we see that portion of the ship open to space and that stays with him yes. when he goes back right. to the bridge because it takes him a while to get that exactly. sight out of his mind exactly. and get back into the battle exactly again. howsomever howsomever I don't think he would have been particularly safe right. in front of a glass no, window no, no. in front of the blast in front of the blast door it, which I don't know about you I'm not building my blast doors with glass windows in right yeah, it was one of those things where you just had to move on. Yes, you just had to move on. Yeah. In fact, let's move on. Right. Okay, so next let's talk about instant, well, no, well chief engineer. Right. Because I think that's her title now. That's what they said. Yeah, chief engineer Jet Reno. As mentioned in previous podcasts, Tignataro is somewhat handicapped by her acting ability. And this is not just a distraction. I mean, she just she's just not a strong actress. Right. She Her persona... Her comedy is based on her persona, which is deadpan, right. which is fine. Just don't ask her to do, you know, monologues from Shakespeare. Right. Uh, but no one can deliver a one-liner better than her, and I honestly do mean this. Um, we especially enjoyed the following exchange between Reno and Michael, who impatiently awaits the charge, the charging of the time crystal, a task that's been overseen by Reno. So Burnham says, 
Uh, where are we with the time crystal? Four minutes and 18 seconds. Can you cut that in half? Violate the basic laws of physics? Um, no. <laughs> so also we want to know, it is Reno who, cont who continued to retain hope that they uh, would secede despite uh, her access to visions of the future for telling the f futility of their efforts. Like number one, she kept her composure under stressful, ever-changing circumstances. And like Spock, she encouraged others to stay on task. She was unwavering in her resolve to make sure no corners were cut in order to give them the best chance at defeating control. Next, we want to discuss one of my favorite characters, um, Giorgio, the ter former Terran Emperor. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed the fight scenes between Giorgio and Leland, as well as the repartee. My favorite Giorgio line after she locked Leland in the spore drive chamber is she threatened, This does not end here. And she responded, Actually, it does. And it's going to hurt. And I would like to hear you scream now. And then she gleefully watches him fall apart as the nanites are neutralized and they leave his body. Yeah. So I just truly, truly enjoyed her and because she was all in it. And remember, even um, earlier in the episode, she tells Saru, invite him over. Right. You know, right, right. because she wants to control the situation. And she figured, you know, if he's in my house. You know, then I have a better advantage than if he's just off somewhere, you right. know, so. Right. I mean, yeah. if the issue was he's a threat, if we contain him in this, yes, if we contain him in the ship. Right. If we get him, we can actually destroy him easy, yes. more easily than if he's over there. That's and right. And we have something he wants, so it makes perfect sense that we could actually lure him here. That's right. I mean. It's it's a genius move. It's also an extremely it is, risky it's one. Very risky, but Giorgio's about risk. Yeah, she is. So and then finally Laurel, it was really great to see Mary Chiefo return as Chancellor Laurel to enjoy engaging in the battle with a bloodthirsty glee. You know, as she voiced such lines as, We will wade knee deep in the ruin of our enemies. Which is actually the first time we've seen the Klingons basically the way we have seen them before yes the yes. joy of battle, battle. Yes. and that's just not something we've we've seen much of in the last two seasons mm -hmm. there's been a lot more strum and drong and not enough of that kind of wonderlust yes yes definitely so gary now let's turn to some star trek news oh yeah there's a lot so i'm going to start off talking about not discovery but actually another Star Trek show in, in the mix, and that's the Picard series. This past week, there was some further developments on the Picard series and when they added three more actors to the cast. Those actors include Allison Peel, who is best known as um, Maggie Jordan from HBO's The Newsroom. She's a former child actor, and she's had prominent roles in such films as Scott Pilgrim vs. The World, Midnight in Paris, Zoom, and most recently last year's Vice. Um, other works that she's done on television include In Treatment for HBO, The Pillar of the Earth, 
as I said, Newsroom and American Horror Story Cult, which was the season 2017. Um, also added was Harry Treadaway, an English actor known for his performance as Victor Frankenstein in the horror drama series Penny Dreadful, as well as his performance as Brady Hartsfield in Mr. Mercedes, a crime drama based on the Bill Hodges novel trilogy written by Stephen King. And then finally they added a young girl named Issa Briones, a Filipino but London-born uh, former child actress and model. Her family moved to Los Angeles in 2006 and she began her acting career here at that time. She immediately captured roles as playing Matt Dillon's daughter in the film Takers, and most recently was seen as Elena Kunanen in American Crime Story Versace last year. Oh, the trio joins series lead Patrick Stewart and previously announced cast members Santiago Cabrera, uh, Michelle Hurd, and newcomer. Evan Evagora. Unfortunately, no details on any of these characters other than Picard are available at this time. I mean, basically, we have an idea of who Picard is based on the previous series, but we have no idea as to what's going on with him in this series. Alright. So, uh, The Ready Room. The Ready Room um, hosted a season two finale interview with Sonequa Martin-Green. Sonequa expressed a great deal of excitement for the possibility of the new direction that Discovery is headed for in season three. The writers are free to exp explore anything they want, according to Sonequa. Regarding the Red Angel suit, Sonequa named the team a production artist who made it possible from Ryan Denning, who was the concept artist who developed the, the design, Mario Moriara, prop master, costume designer extraordinaire, Gersha Phillips, and, he, and the head cutter. She also stated that the FX department had a hand in developing uh, the suit. She revealed that the hardest part of the finale was acknowledging the fact that they were saying goodbye to many people who had made a significant mark on the show. So this includes not only the obvious ones such as Anson Mount, Ethan Peck, and Rebecca Romaine, who had just been hired for a single season, but others who had been with the show from the beginning. This includes Mary Chifo, who played Laurel, Shazad Latif, who played Ash Tyler, James Frain, who played Sarek, Maya Kirshner, who played Amanda, Amanda, Jane Brooke, who played Admiral Cornwell. Sonequa also mentioned Hannah Spear, who created the role of Sarana, Saru's sister. Sonequa wrapped up with a description of how the cast celebrated the final day of shooting with tears, goodbyes, and staying in touch with each other during breaks in the production. Ready Room host Naomi Kyle told Sonequa how much other cast members had referenced her as the heart and soul 
of the show. Okay, so next I want to talk about Anson Mount at GPCC. On April 14th, the weekend before the season two finale, Anson Mount made an appearance at the Greater Philadelphia Comic Con. During an interview, he stated a few newsworthy items. First, he said the production schedule on season two of Discovery lasted eight months for a 14 episode. Anson considered it a snail's pace for the average TV production schedule. Mount said he believed that Pike was a person of faith who believes in science. He went on to say he played him as a man who had grown up going uh, to church. This context was used by him to address the character elements that the show was developing. On the subject of a Pike-centered series, Mount said that he would need to have some creative conversations. There wasn't any detail given to spell out what he meant about creative issues that he might have. However, this comment did follow his description of the shooting schedule being very slow. Then finally, Mount stated that he remembered hearing that Discovery would return to Toronto for the start of the shooting of, of the uh, for the start of shooting for season three in July 2019. Now, the final bit of news we want to give you is um, some information that came out of the Alex Kurtzman interview with the Hollywood Reporter. Um, the HollywoodReporter.com posted an interview with. Discovery executive producer and showrunner Alex Kurtzman basically 90 minutes after the premiere of the season 2 finale dropped on CBS All Access. In the interview, Kurtzman embraced the very radical move to take the series 950 years into the future and he said, We love playing with canon. It's a delight and a privilege. It's fun to explore nooks and crannies of the universe that people haven't fully explored yet. That being said, we felt strongly that we wanted to give ourselves an entirely new energy for season three with a whole new set of problems. We're farther than any Trek show has ever gone. We're now completely free of canon and we have a whole new universe to explore. Now, I know that last comment might be something that some critics will, gl will glom onto and begin to use to justify their continued hatred of this series. And what, but I, I do want to say, I don't think he's saying that he's completely free of canon. Yeah. What he's saying is he's, he's freed of having to run into things that are restrictions that some fans right. might see based on what's already been done in, in earlier episodes right. of, right. of the of series. What that means now is that they're still going to be based on everything that Star Trek has ever been. What that means for them, however, is that they now get to write the canon as it relates to Discovery and its, and its new direction. And how they're freer uh, is, I'm talking about the characters, is that they'll be able to talk about the people they left behind. 
Yes. Because they they don't have a directive that says, oh, you can't mention them. Well, I think they're going to all we're, we're going to see some of the elements obviously that were raised in um, Calypso be addressed. Now, I know some people have said, well, didn't they fix the timeline so they should come into a completely different future? I don't know. I mean, we we're assuming that they're going to meet. Uh, Burnham's mom again. Right. They're going to revisit Terralisium again. So, what is what does that mean now in the context of where we have been beforehand? Okay. So, anyway, there were a couple of um, um, news items that were in the interview that I want to highlight. Uh, basically, that the fan-led campaign to get a Pike Ex- Enterprise series up and running has been heard. That's a quote from Kurtzman's. And he said, anything is possible in track. I mean, he didn't make a com- full commitment, no. but there definitely seems to be that that they that the the clamor of fans who definitely want a Pike series has been at least heard or recognized oh, yeah. by by the powers that be. I would watch that show. Yeah, I know. I think that I think that would be fine. Mm-hmm. All we have to do is deal with them creative conversations right, that, uh, right, and some Malachi, I guess he don't want to do 14 episodes in 8 months he likes to do a little faster um, along with that the section 31 series that is still being led by Michelle Yao uh, who just happened to get, catch a ride on the discovery <laughs> going to the future I'm right. just saying right. um, will reveal how the group became the organization that we first saw in Deep Space Nine and why it was it became the secretive covert entity that we we first were introduced to and and again we first saw it as far as how it appeared chronologically on television but it's not chronologically according to the star trek universe because because section 31 is first mentioned in enterprise well so, no it's first mentioned in deep space 9 but because Enterprise is a prequel. We see it mentioned there too. Well, that's what I was saying. Well, that's yeah. I said okay. that to our listeners. Yes, we are a married couple. Okay, go go yes, right ahead. Yes, we are. Okay, <laughs> season three will address the leadership issue with Discovery. So we'll see who actually inherits the chair, and and as captain of Discovery, and then finally. Um, Kurtzman said that the Picard series will begin production in Los Angeles very soon. Right. So again, this is a departure from the these uh, the Discovery series and also the short treks which were produced in Toronto. Right. Right. But the, I think that was a creative concern right. of Patrick Stewart, right. who he said, "I don't have a house in in Toronto. Right. Right. I do have a place right. in Los Angeles. That's right. Exactly. So let's do the show in Los Angeles. Exactly. <laughs> so next up, uh, within a few weeks, Gary and I will return with an overall examination of season two, as well as our thoughts on the promise of Discovery season three, which is set almost ten centuries into the future." But until that time, we'd like for you to like, subscribe, and follow Star Trek Age of Discovery on Twitter, on Facebook, on at our website, StarTrekAOD.net, where we offer additional articles on Star Trek canon and interesting sidebar issues and, and aspects of the series and the franchise. 
Also, email the show at StarTrekAOD at gmail.com with any suggestions you might have of things that we could explore over this break. Now that we're we're probably not going to see the show again until spring of 2020. Well, Discovery, but we we definitely will uh, do podcasts on the Picard show. Yeah, we we, uh, we will definitely do that. I think that can fall under the category of age of discovery too right right so we'll be covering that but but discovery won't be back until spring of 2020 exactly but until then live long and prosper 